Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Objectively speaking, I can't say that Cacio e Pepe is any worse than a traditional tikka masala, despite my British roots tell me to do otherwise. It is, however, fair to say that the range of different interpretations of that curry is almost infinitely greater than that of the classic Roman dish. And that all comes down to seasonings. Why then, listener, do so many of us hamper our cocktail-making potential by only owning a handful of bitters? Your Angosturas and Peixotes of the world, perhaps a bottle of orange. Don't get me wrong, it can be intimidating to know what kind of bitters to use in a drink, especially if you're creating a cocktail or looking to riff on one of your staples. But help is on hand here as always at Cocktail College, the fine form of Souther Teague. The only time I notice bitters is when they're missing, Souther says, and is the beverage director at New York's Amoria Margo and Overthrow Hospitality, the former of which has the largest selection of potable and tincture bitters in the world, well, you'd be wise to listen to it. On today's episode, the host of the Speakeasy podcast and author of I'm Just Here for the Drinks breaks down the ingredient from both a historical and practical perspective. And take my word for it, by the time we're done here, we'll be chomping at the bit to start experimenting. Because as Souther also says, the only way to misuse bitters is to misusing them. It's original blends, orifice reducers, and the over and a bounce technique. And it's all right here on the Cocktail College Podcast. Ahoy hoy. Ahoy. It's the Cocktail College Podcast. We're in the studio today with none other than Souther Teague. And I got to say, this is long overdue. I mean, yeah, you guys, how long have you been at this now? This is number 98. Number 98? And... I'll I mean, at you, this point, you should have waited two more, and I could have been number one. You could have been what? You could have been the Hundy, <laughs> which would have been great. But just to give you an idea of how overdue this is, when I originally pitched this show to Vine Pair, you were in the original twenty guests that I was like, and this is the topic we should talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and for whatever reason, we 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 haven't connected before then. But um, you know, it was great for us to to catch up. I, I you know, I'm, we chatted. I'm seventy eight issues late. You are. <laughs> and I'm putting the blame solely on myself here. It's all right. Souther, I want to say as well, this is another great opportunity f- to spend some time recording with a fellow LA Spirits judge. And that's right. Yeah, we had a great time doing that together. We were at the same table. Mm-hmm. We got to um, blindly go through lots and lots of booze from early in the day till late in the afternoon. <laughs> and then it's, in the uh, evening good, off the clock. Listen, it's good work if you can get it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm not going to sit here for one second and say that I'm not living a pretty charmed life when I get asked to come across the country to drink booze all day. Yep. Um, so, yeah, shout out to those guys always when, when we get the opportunity. But today, I mean, this was always the topic that I wanted to have you on for. Um, it's bitters. It's a deep dive on bitters. It's not the... Potable bitters, I believe there's a distinction that we're going to get into, but mm-hmm. cocktail bitters, mm-hmm. um, both of which are fields in which you have very much established your name. Well, right. I mean, you know, I opened a bar called Amoria Margo 12 years ago. That seems crazy. Um, that specializes, Amoria Margo means love and bitters. We specialize in tincture and potable bitters, and that's what you're, you're struggling to, to put the word on is tincture. Mm-hmm. Tincture bitters are all the small bottles that you put in drops and dashes, Potable bitters are the bottles that you pull off the backbone and drink by the ounce. Such as um, Amaro. 
Sure, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, amaro and bitter. Yeah. Amaro means bitter in Italian. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this is also in reaction to a listener question, um, or part of this is going to be, and I'll highlight when we get to that part, mm-hmm. but that's all of which is to say that's a reminder, too, that folks, much like Waystar Royco, we are listening. That's a succession. <laughs> we hear you. Uh, no, but seriously, reach out. Don't, you know, you can always reach out, podcast at vinepair.com or tim at vinepair.com. My email's out there already, so I'm happy giving it away there. Um, and, you know, like, if there's anything you want to hear on the show if there's anything you think we're missing topics cocktails i know there's some we just aren't able to nail down the guests sometimes sam ross we're we're we're, we're calling you out there buddy uh, <laughs> yeah, i've been trying to get him on the speakeasy for years the paper plane matt i mean he doesn't need the he doesn't need the press that he doesn't care not that you do so there but um no i think bitters we're going to call this a techniques episode it could very well be an ingredients episode and i want to kick this off by going all the way back to 1806 in a quote um, I know just, where you're going. The balance and register or whatever it was called. The Colombian balance. What is it? The balance and Colombian repository. There we go. And I always get that one mixed up as well. I start Googling and I hope Google remembers like where mm-hmm. I'm going with that. Um, but we're going to start with a quote because it makes us sound you know, more professional than we actually are. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the definition. The original definition or the first widely known definition of a cocktail, which says a cocktail is a stimulating drink made of all kinds of spirits, sugars, water, and bitters, which I've put here in bold. So, first question for you today, Souther. Are we to assume that this is a similar style of tincture bitters, as you mentioned earlier, or cocktail bitters, as a lot of people call them, to those found today in mixed drinks, such as the Old Fashioned, the Sazerac, the list goes on? I would say yes and no. Were they the small fraction of the cocktail that was added in to kind of season? You know, when I talk about tincture bitters, I say... They are the seasoning to the soup that is your cocktail. And unless you're the type who eats unseasoned soup, I offer that you shouldn't drink unseasoned cocktails, right? Whatever cocktail you're drinking that doesn't have bitters in it could could benefit from some. You know, you're making a daiquiri, let's put some lime bitters in there. You know, there's a choice that would be accurate. But there's also no wrong choice either. The only way to misuse bitters is to misusing bitters, in my opinion. So let's go back. Um, they were the small component that was seasoning whatever the spirit was. And again, as the definition that you just read describes... It was any spirit, and we have often thought of it as a whiskey drink. But Dave Wondert sort of uncovered and unearthed that it was overwhelmingly likely that it was um, Jennifer, mm-hmm. because that was what was being the most imported into the United States at the time this cocktail surfaced, right, of this definition surfaced, uh, by like stripes, apparently, like by doubled everything combined. Oh, wow. um, I'm probably misquoting. Dave, Dave can chime in. Yeah, they were the seasoning, but they weren't what we know today, right, because of the ones that we know today that have even been around for a long time didn't come around until the late 1820s. Right, and this definition was what you just said it was 1806, right? 1806, yeah. Talking 20 years later that Angostura, Peixos hit the market, right? Um, So what these were were probably snake oil, what we we refer to as snake oil. These were the sort of peripatetic vendors traveling from town to town in a wagon uh, and opening up their little shop and, you know, standing on a soapbox and proclaiming that it was a tonic to cure everything, mm-hmm. liver spots and, uh, you know, height problems. You get taller if you drink this, you know, hair <laughs> loss, uh, impotence, um, you know, they could solve everything. Um, and they were, you know, used to, to make the medicine go down. You would put some into your, your drink, right? So it became sort of habit to season your drink. Before that, spirit, sugar, and water, that's a sling, right? So the bittered sling is the cocktail. Does that, make, does that make sense? Yeah. So that's the evolution that we start to see there. I think so, right? And then, you know, what happened is, where did all those snake oils go? Because there were, you know, myriad. Every town had two, right, uh, of their own. 
And it was the onset of government that said the FDA was created. And the FDA stated, you can say all of that stuff about your product, but you have to prove it. <laughs> and if you can't prove it, then you have to go away. So they all went away. And then that's when probably things like Angostura emerged. And they didn't say, this will cure your hiccups and your your cholera and whatever. They said, this is delicious. Yeah. Which you can say. The FDA allows you to say your product is delicious. It's subjective. It could be delicious to you and terrible to me. That's fine. You can still say that. So then these ones appeared that, that were then there again to, to maybe make the medicine go down a little smoother. You add it to your spirits. And that goes in both directions, right? To make taking a dose of this product better. I'm adding whiskey to it, but also the whiskey's probably pretty rough back then. We weren't very good at, um, you know, filtration. <laughs> we weren't very good at, uh, uh, you know, distillation even. So, you know, one one helped the other, I think. And then, you know, I, I've, I've read this as well that, you know, typically speaking, this would be something like you take at the start of the day. And also people would have a shot of something at the start of the day. So it makes sense to kind of combine them, give you a bit of gusto, you know, also drinking water back then. That's definitely. what I was about to say. Yeah. yeah, water still wasn't the safest thing to drink. <laughs> um, so you didn't drink a lot of water. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you would start your day with, uh, you know, typically beer was a big thing to start your day with, beer for breakfast. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of calories. It's got some nutritional value as well. Um, spirits were drank throughout the day uh, because they were, uh, you know, Again, impactful uh, and in a smaller quantity, right? You didn't have to carry around so much because it was basically concentrate. You could add some add some water to it, and hopefully the spirit would kill the water, the problems in the water. But we didn't know that. Again, science wasn't very invented yet, if, 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 mm -hmm. that's, if that's a way to put it. We still weren't re really clear on why the water was bad for us. We just knew it was. Um, so yeah, drinking was common. I mean, off air, we just talked about how I start my day every every morning by having an Underberg, which is a, a it toes the line between a tincture and a potable. It comes in a three quarter of an ounce bottle. You've probably seen them. They're wrapped in paper. Yep. It's German. Uh, their tagline is uh, after a good meal. Um, but I drink one right when I wake up every morning. Uh, and I don't drink coffee. That's the first thing I drink. It gets Famously my, not a coffee drinker. Gets my, I am, right? It gets my system going, right? It mm -hmm. uh, gives me a little jolt. Um, I'm not drinking it for the ABV. I'm drinking it more for the bitterness, which I think a lot of people drink coffee for the jolt of caffeine. And maybe they've forgotten that they also drink it for that bitterness, which activates their digestive system and gets their met metabolism going for the day. So I have an Underberg every morning. Mm -hmm. That's a great tip right there already, coming from Southern Teague right <laughs> here. Start the day with an Underberg. Mm -hmm. um, beloved, you know, beloved, especially over there in the Midwest, I believe, right? Uh, devoted following there. I think. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you're right. I think, uh, but I think it's becoming more and more known. You know, I, I don't, I'm certainly not going to break my arm patting myself on the back. But Amori Margos has enlightened a lot of people to, to a lot of mm -hmm. these things over the years. And you can see it. It's a visible thing for me. The early days of Amor, when I go back and find some photographs that you can see the back bar and it looks like, you know, it's like a piano that's missing some keys. That Every mm -hmm. bottle is spaced. There's lots of room in between, you know. But now <laughs> they're, they're piled up there so deeply that the, the bottle behind the front bottle isn't the same bottle because I, I don't have enough linear footage to show all the bottles. And, you know, I think we certainly have played a hand in getting people interested in both bitters, tincture, and, and poto. I have the world's largest collection of both in one location. That's pretty incredible. I feel really you know, very proud of what we've done over there. And that does remind me, actually, I, 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 I was struggling to make a connection here, but um, one of our writers, uh, a favored writer of mine to work with, Maggie Hennessy, worked on a wonderful story about the cult of Underberg. And that's right. She uh, she, she reached out to you. And, and I think you have some wonderful comments in that piece. So people should uh, yeah, people should head there on Vinepair if they if they want to learn more about Underberg. Uh, but we're talking about the other type of bitters today. You know, well, yeah, they told the line. It's a three quarter of an ounce bottle and it's meant to be taken all at once. However, it's still sold as a non-potable 
meaning undrinkable um, by the ounce, and that's how the government. That's a a distinction that the government makes, right? Mm-hmm. Potable versus tincture is um, it means drinkable by the ounce or not, right? Um, that's why you can go to your local grocery store uh, without any ID. Sixteen years old, you can go and buy as much Angostura bitters as you can carry, even though that stuff clocks in at just over ninety proof. Yep. Um, they don't expect that you're going to drink it by the ounce. Mm-hmm. And then my argument is, can you drink it by the ounce? Certainly. Will it be easy? Probably not. Will it be delicious? Depends. For me, I think so. <laughs> I don't know about the average person <laughs> drinking ounces upon ounce of Angostura. Um, but the, the real thing is, it will it be costly? Yeah, mm-hmm. too costly. It's the, a five-ounce bottle of Angostura is going to cost you about the same as a, a liter bottle of Old Overholt rye whiskey at the at the liquor store, right? Um, I have this weird conjecture. It could be completely false. But I think that the reason the government made the difference is because the difference between bitters and extract is just one ingredient. Right. So vanilla extract is one step away from being vanilla bitters. Mm-hmm. And I think that the government probably said, well, I don't want to have, you know, let's let's reel the clock back to, you know, turn of the century or whatever. I don't want to have my grandmother who wants to make me a birthday cake have to go to the liquor store to buy vanilla extract so she can make my cake. Right. She doesn't want to go to the liquor store. She's, you know, with her Bible in hand. So I think that's where the distinction was made. Yeah. And, and I, I think could be totally wrong, but it's a very romanticized view. Also, it, it it makes that definitely does track. There's there's definitely some uh, common sense at play there, um, which is can be surprising when it comes to the government. But uh, Damn, also, <laughs> I think to to your point, not only is you know drinking Angostura to get drunk going to be costly, it's going to be too much of a challenge for most folks' palates, oh, for right? Sure. You know, I don't think there's any danger of sixteen year olds being like, look at this great loophole we found. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Like, uh, we could actually or they drink would have done stuff. it years ago with vit, with with uh, extracts. They'd yeah. be out drinking vanilla. Exactly. You know, you'd know that your kid was doing this. He'd smell great. <laughs> <laughs> His teeth would be black, with stained with the uh, artificial uh, coloring that we add there. Right. But that's a great point, and that's a great seg to what exactly are these products there? Because obviously, you know, spoiler alert there. These products contain alcohol. A lot of it. But generally speaking, are there different kind of categories of bitters? You know, you mentioned that, you know, the brand name's there, but are there some categories of bitters and and, and what would define them from a kind of ingredient standpoint? Sure. I would say categories, yes and no, and I'll, I'll follow up with that in a sec, but I'll just tell you what bitters are first. I mentioned already that, you know, they're one step, you know, um, extracts are one step away from being bitters. Bitters are three-prong, you know, construction. Mm-hmm. Um and then if you add in tomorrow, it's just one more prong, so four prongs. Three prongs being alcohol is always the base. And then I'll caveat right here by saying there are some NA bitters that have hit the market in the last couple of years because there's demand for that. They're glycerin-based, typically. Uh, but let's go with the traditional. That would be alcohol as a base. Um, surprise, surprise. There's a bittering agent in the middle. That bittering agent can be any one or any number, right? It's their recipe. And those bittering agents include things you know, like uh, you know, quinine that's in your tonic water or, or wormwood that's in your vermouth or an absinthe or cassia or, um, you know, orris, angelica, black aloe. There's dozens and they can choose any one or any combination. Again, it's their soup. They can make it how they want. And then, of course, the top note is the flavor agent, right? So I always cite Angostura with the bright yellow cap and the oversized paper label that, mm-hmm. that everyone knows. Um, so that one's alcohol. It's the base. The the bittering agent in there is gentian, and it's a flower. Or it's the root of the flower, but it's a flower. It's the most common bittering agent, and I think so because it's a flower. It's real easy to grow, harvest. It's real easy to carry, you know, unlike a cassia bark, which you have to go to the jungles and tear bark off a tree and haul it out of there. You know, that's pretty difficult. <laughs> so the, the, the gentian is pretty common because it's easy, I think, to harvest. Uh, and then the top notes of Angostura are cinnamon and cardamom, right? Um, and then if we were to make it tomorrow, we'd add sugar. That's the only difference. So we're going to take this bitter thing that's way out of balance and add some sweetener to it to give it some balance so I can drink it by the ounce. Hmm. 
So that's really the difference between tincture versus potables, the sweetening agent. And that sugar can be any number of sugars. Um, the most common is beet molasses, actually. Um, but, you know, beet molasses, honey, uh, maple syrup, white sugar, turbinado, brown sugar, et cetera. Any choice of their own, again, it's their recipe. So that's what bitters are made of. And then uh, Angostura, as I just mentioned, cinnamon and cardamom, that's become its own category. Ango only makes three, and only three as of recently, really. They make Angostura, they make Angostura orange, and they make Angostura cacao. But if they just stood alone at Angostura, they are kind of considered their own category, which is aromatic style. And many, many of the other bitters makers have their line with all their flavors, and then they'll offer an aromatic style. And that's basically just their version of Ango. <laughs> and um, I don't want to call anybody out by name, but I'll say, you know, can I swear on this thing? Yeah. Yeah, I'll say um, ketchup is fucking Heinz, right? There are other ketchups out there, but Heinz is fucking ketchup, right? Mm -hmm. So Angostura is your aromatic style. You don't need to mess around with anybody else's aromatic style. <laughs> yeah, I've, we've said this on this very podcast before as well um, with regard to Campari and more recently Chartreuse too, right? Like mm. there are, uh, well, that's, that's argue, my opinion. I would argue least. on the Chartreuse by, by saying this. Chartreuse, and we, this is off topic because this is a bitters program. We can come back and talk Chartreuse another time. But Chartreuse is a genipe. It is not the only genipe. It is simply the world's most known genipe. Mm -hmm. There are many other genipes that you can use that are equally useful and delicious, in my opinion. You but know, would you use those, for example, you know, for a last, last word, word or, or make whatever. famous? Yes. Well, it's crazy enough, on my podcast just last week, we had a whole episode where we tasted six different marks of Genepi <laughs> in those two exact drinks. Um, so there's some, Your award-winning podcast, that's we should right, mention. That's Congratulations right. on that. Finally, we won <laughs> seven years of being nominated and top four, and we finally won. Um, Much deserved. Yeah, the spirited awards from the Tales of the Cocktail. Um, so so there are many others out there, but, but I do agree – no one's going to topple the king, right? You want to, mm -hmm. but but it's getting more and more scarce, so we have to come up with different things to do. We're getting way off topic, but back to Ango. So there's aromatic style, and then beyond that, no, there aren't really any just direct categories. There are simply lots and lots of different flavors, mm -hmm. and whatever flavor you're looking for, as a guy who has over 500, it exists. Um, and if it doesn't exist outright, it probably exists in component form. Mm -hmm. You can find two. You know, if you have two flavors that you want to combine, there's probably two bitters out there that are those two flavors and you can combine them. Yeah. And don't forget, you should. I think that people come to the end of the road of making a cocktail and add bitters. Well, you can add more than one. You can keep on mixology-ing. <laughs> Do some more mixology. Um, yeah. And, and take, a, a, you know, a bitters that you like and another bitters that you like that you think both of them would be good in this cocktail and do a dash or a half dash or whatever in each one and move on from there. Um, but no, there aren't any other real categories. You have your aromatic mm -hmm. style and then you have... I don't know, I guess we could break it into like citrus ones and then not. But it's really almost like trying to tear apart your spice cabinet into, mm -hmm. into categories. So I think I think also that's partly down to, you know, semantics here, right? You oh, know, for sure. like because you could say flavors, but then otherwise we could say like orange. Okay, orange is a flavor, but it's also sort of emerged in terms of a category in the form that like I was reading the, um, you know, uh, Oxford Companion shortly before we came on here. Man, oh, man. That's a <laughs> just, thick book. Just a light bit, bit of light reading, you know, yeah. as you do. And as I told you off air, I was surprised to see that you, uh, I know you're a contributor to that, but mm -hmm. surprised not to see your name here in that category. But um, I think there is one reference to a cocktail book from 1906, I forget which one, where they were talking about orange bitters as being a necessary in a martini absolutely and b even back then 
there were, I, I want to say, like they list 10 different brand names, one or two of which sounded familiar, but I don't think any of them are really like very, very available right now. Mm-hmm. But all of which is to say that, yeah, maybe it's a category, maybe it's a flavor, but many brands went after that style or flavor of bitters, probably because of that very cocktail or its oh, use yeah. in yeah 100 i mean you know even there was a point in time here in new york it was quite popular to use vegans do you, do you ever do you remember hearing that term here in new york uh, no. maybe 15 years ago vegans uh, orange bitters all all the bartenders were splitting 50 50 regans and fees and you know putting them back into the bottle and the reason was frankly because i did it too um, the Fee Brothers is not what I would consider a traditional bitters because it's not alcohol-based. It's glycerin-based. They kind of got grandfathered in because they've been around for so long. Hmm. Um, but the reason was that it's a, that glycerin is soap, right? It's It's got a mouthfeel. So a bit of Regan's, which is the sharper, more sort of assertive orange up against Fee's, which has this sort of rounder mouthfeel, would add some complexity to the body of your cocktail, mm-hmm. especially just a straight old-fashioned, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, mixing bitters is, is a thing. And yeah, maybe, I guess maybe orange could, could have its own category, but then that's like citrus, right? You've got so many citrus bitters and then the lines get blurry because you've got things like, you know, the, the bitters that I came out with, which are grapefruit and cinnamon. So now cinnamon is in, you know, your, your aromatic style, but grapefruit's a citrus. So that would be in your citrus style. Then you, again, it's too hard to pull them apart, I think. Yeah. I think you just have to look at them at face value and take them for what they are. Mm-hmm. And I did note one other thing down here, and I'm probably going to struggle with the pronunciation of this, but this is a brand from 1690 that I just loved because of the name, Stoughton's Stomachic Bitters. Yeah, Stoughton's. Stoughton's, so what? That, I mean, again, that proves that these were being used for digestive purposes, settling the stomach mm-hmm. long before this definition of the cocktail that comes along in 1806, right? Yeah, again, these were the, the the vendors who were moving around from town to town. Some of them survived past the FDA, but again, not if they claimed anything medicinal. Mm-hmm. And that's true of alcohol too, right? We can't in this country say uh, anything that alludes to the fact that something in the bottle is quote-unquote healthy or um, there's a specific term I'm struggling to remember, but we can't make any claims that the, what's in the bottle is any in, in any way medicinal or healthy. Mm-hmm. Right? We can't say, you know. I mean, brands try all the time. Right. I mean, and I, they, so they fly quite close to the sun. They do. I think Guinness gets the closest, right? <laughs> Guinness is good for you. Ooh, that's pretty close. Um, but yeah, you can't uh, you can't make any medicinal or health claims on booze and spirits or spirits related mm-hmm. things anymore. That's why it's funny you brought up Sam Ross. But many competitions won't allow you to name your cocktails in, in any way that might be something like that, like the penicillin. Um, <laughs> right. So, you, you know, like, uh, but he didn't put that in a contest. He can do what he wants. But like, yeah, because the brands can't associate themselves with anything that, that might be, I think, and, and I think there is one that slipped through that crack, which is the painkiller. Right. But you can't say that stuff about your booze. It can't be. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a headache. I may as well just, I don't have my out of Tylenol. I may as well belt back a few slugs <laughs> of this rum here. <laughs> Definitely do not uh, take the penicillin for actual medicinal uses. Exactly. It's not going to, yeah. uh, not yeah. going to provide the same effects. Um, uh, I, nor Vinepair, encourages you to do this. <laughs> there we go. I'm not going to ask you to commit to brands because especially, you know, you have such a wide collection and, and that's not what we're here to do today. But I'm going to ask you to commit to, say, five styles or flavors mm-hmm. of bitters that you think everyone should have on hand. Easy enough. Yeah, yeah. I can do this. You'd be shocked. I get asked this a lot. Um, well, first, I would say, look at your back bar. And if you don't already have Angostura and Orange Bitters, which I do have a brand I will recommend on that one, which is Regan's, mm-hmm. um, 
and Peugeot's. So those are three brands, I'll say. And I know that's three, so the analogy doesn't work perfectly, but that's your salt and pepper. Mm -hmm. You need to have those to start anywhere. You know, any old chef, when you say, uh, uh, you know, what would you take to a desert island? Uh, they're not going to say cilantro. Because I can do a bunch of stuff with cilantro. can't do a damn thing without salt. Right? I'm taking salt. Mm -hmm. And then someone's going to say, well, can't you just get salt from the water? I'm going to say, listen, man, <laughs> you're not playing the game right. Um, so you have to have those three. Beyond those three, if, you, if, I would, if I were to give you five more, I would say don't stray too far from home at first. Meaning, as I just told you, Angostura is cinnamon and cardamom. Well, try a mole bitters, which is cinnamon and cacao. One step away, but man, oh man, does that make a different old-fashioned, mm -hmm. right? Um, don't step so crazy far away from the orange bitters. Get yourself something like hopped grapefruit or I have a rosemary grapefruit one on the bar that I'm kind of in love with uh, this time of year. So, and then uh, for Peixos, you know, analog, which has like some cherry bark and cinnamon notes, I would get something like a cherry bark vanilla bitters, right? So then you can say, I'm going to make all the same cocktails I normally make, but I'm going to use this bitters instead, and suddenly I've made a new cocktail. Oh, wow. Right? Just by changing that one little tweak of seasoning. So there, that would be six for your back bar. The three that I think that you must have, and then those three. And if I were to give you two more to, to, to be five past the traditional, then I would say once you've got those and you're using them in a more broad spectrum, try and grab a few that are a little bit more focused. And those can range from like anything. Like I really love um, Bitter End as a brand. I know I said I wasn't going to do brands, and here I am. Um, Bitter End's a brand. All of his stuff is really spicy, but I like his stuff, right? So he does um, Memphis barbecue bitters. That seems pretty Ooh. specific, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it is. But you can add a couple of drops to that to an old-fashioned, and now you've got this sort of like smoky, kind of chili-spiced. You know, it's like uh, I have a drink called the New Boots, which is uh, American whiskey um, chiocharo, which has this sort of cola vibe. Um, so you got this kind of bourbon and cola thing going, and then you add in a couple drops of this barbecue bitters, and you've got this bourbon and cola at a barbecue in the style of an old-fashioned, right? And I call it New Boots, right? New Boots, not, not the same old rodeo. <laughs> um, so, like, that's one that's a little bit out there, but then you can use this one in your Bloody Mary. Yeah, put bitters in your Bloody Mary. Why not? Celery bitters and barbecue bitters in a Bloody Mary? Let's go, right? So uh, I would say grab something specific and maybe spicy, and then I would say grab something specific and maybe, like, floral, like something like a lavender bitters um, is, is a great useful one to put in your martini or your gin tonic that really change things for you. So now you've got something floral, something spicy, your three salt and pepper, and then your three analog to salt and pepper that are one step away. And there you go. Perfect. And then literally the the options are almost endless by the sounds of things. Man, I don't think they're almost endless. I think they're endless because mm -hmm. whatever I have, that doesn't mean that I have everything. You know, um, there are more producers out there than I'll ever run across. There are more producers that know I exist that they're going to even send me a sample or try and get my attention. <laughs> um, but if you're out there, please send. Um, I'd love to get you on the shelves at Amore Margo. But that's the fun part, right? You, the never-ending uh, nature of it gives you this notion that you can continually be on the road to discovery. Mm -hmm. And I love what you're saying there about the salary and the Bloody Mary. I want to get back it to that in just one moment. But, you know, if you are out there, folks, as well, again, we're going to go specific brand for a second here. But this came up in a cocktail college recording with none other than Dale DeGroff. Mm -hmm. I believe he is um, having some issues with the FDA or oh, some kind over. of formula. It's fixed. It's fixed? Mm -hmm. Okay, we can announce that because otherwise I was going to say, go and get a bottle of those while you can because that's a wonderful bitter there, but they're they're sorted. Yeah, they're sorted. So Dale DeGroff's pimento bitters is what you're talking about. Pimento yep. is is the, is not um, a pepper. Pimento is the allspice berry. So it's an allspice bitters. Um, so allspice tastes of, well, all spices, ginger, mm. nutmeg, mace. Um, 
And it's delightful bitters, delightful in a Manhattan, great in an old-fashioned. But really, in my opinion, this stuff is built for speed when it comes to, like, nice brandies and aged rums. Yeah. Right. Make yourself cognac old-fashioned using the pimento bitters. Make yourself a Mai Tai and squeak in some pimento bitters. Let's go. Ooh. Like, I mean, pimento is an island spice. I, I think it's funny. We here in the United States, I think, view these spices as, like, wintry, you know, Christmassy spices. We call them that all the time. Um, meanwhile, they all came from places where winter winter doesn't, <laughs> doesn't go. Exist. That's a great point. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, as did uh, Old Spice Dram. You yeah, know, one hundred percent. Fantastic. Seems like Christmas came from a place where it never gets cold. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably because we wanted to warm ourselves up in the winter months. Mm-hmm. I don't know, or just with the idea of it, those flavors. Yeah. Who and knows? So, since we're throwing him out there, we can throw me out there too. I made my yes. own bitters uh, for the past two years. I started making. Uh, I made the first one. I made was cinnamon and grapefruit. Um, which is not a, no one else makes a cinnamon and grapefruit bitters that I could find. So I thought there was a hole there because if you look at the cocktail canon, especially in the tiki world, that's Don's mix. Cinnamon syrup and grapefruit juice is Don's mix. Why doesn't that exist in the bitter world? Well, now it does. And I call it driftwood. And then I made one. And it, do, it, it does the job for I, I kind of was building it for rum. But it does rum, brandy, American whiskey, uh, 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 repo and añejo, tequilas. Um, um, like it really it fares well with the dark stuff. Mm-hmm. So then a year later, last Christmas, I made Garden Party, which is um, cucumber, basil, ginger, which kind of is the other side of the coin. It goes in your white spirits. You put it in your martini, add it to a Pimm's cup. Uh, it's uh, gin, vodka, Blanco tequila, white rum, Akavit. Um, and they're available just through me at my website. Um, you can check that out. I'm Amazing. Sure we'll put that and in the notes somewhere. Yeah, yeah. We'll link to I'm that. Not, I'm, not to, I'm not here to hawk myself. No, no. We should give you that opportunity, of course. And I, I mean, I've not tried that garden mix, and that sounds... Garden in, party, baby. Uh, I'll get garden, you some. Yeah, that sounds amazing because, you know, I, I'm always looking for ways in which to riff on my martini but not get away from the soul of what that drink is. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, like, look, I think you can do that very easily. I've done that very easily by accidentally putting Angostura in when I meant to put orange in. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's an interesting drink. It's not how I like to drink you know, a martini, though. I was making a martini um, some years ago. This is where Garden Party got its Genesis idea, even though it was well before I created the bitters. I was doing um, water replacement. You know, we were freezing um, gin and scraping off the water and replacing the water with cucumber water um, and adding in other things. And one of the things we added in at one point was basil. Um, so cucumber basil water mm-hmm. to reproof down the gin and then make whatever you want to make. Beautiful. So I think that little egg was still stuck in my brain and it mm-hmm. hatched its way out and as, mm-hmm. as garden party bitters. I think there's a gin out there as well. I want to say it's called Poli 45 or something. There's an Italian gin that's that's infused or that, that includes uh, basil in the in the botanical mix and it's just absolutely wonderful. Um, but to, to, to bring us back to that thought a few thoughts ago, mm-hmm. celery bitters in your Bloody Mary. Mm-hmm. Is that the first thing I should be thinking when I'm coming to and I'm going to say cocktail creation here. If I'm if I'm looking to come up with a new cocktail, maybe whether it's at home or if, if I'm working behind a bar, but you said that's your final seasoning. Let's not, you know, drink or eat unseasoned soup. Drink mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, so we need that for the cocktail. It's in there in the definition we said, 1806. Mm-hmm. What's my thinking when it comes to which bitters I should be reaching for? What's the first guiding factor for you? I think that... You know, I, I taught at a culinary school for several years back when I was a um, chef, and I taught a class called Taste and Flavor. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit. But, but first, I want to say there's no wrong answer. 
because your brain has cataloged things in such a way that you already know the answer before you do it, right? So in, in the class Taste and Flavor, I talked about how there's the Venn diagram of two circles. One says, only I like this, and the other says, everybody likes this. They almost entirely overlap. There's a thin little sliver on the side that's like, there's that one guy in the room who says he doesn't like chocolate. Fuck him. Everybody mm. likes chocolate, right? <laughs> and then there's that thin little sliver on the other side that's like, only I like anchovies and ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else in the room likes that. Yep. Right? But here's the trick, and uh, the mental sort of trick. When I say words, about food especially, you can taste them. I said anchovies a second ago. If you think about anchovies, whether they're any near you at this moment as you listen to this podcast or not, you can taste them. They're oily, they're salty, they're fishy. Whether you like them or not, you can taste them right now. But I also said ice cream. So you can say vanilla ice cream. You can say, well, it's creamy, it's custardy, it's rich, it's vanilla, it's uh, frozen. I can taste ice cream. Well, then you can say anchovies and vanilla ice cream, and you can taste that right now. And if that works in your mind, for you, it will work in the bowl. It doesn't work in mine, so I don't think it'll work for me. And it's not 50-50. It's not 50% anchovies and 50% ice cream. But there might be levers you can pull to make it work, right? The unfortunate truth is we catalog food because we've been eating it all our lives. Technically, we haven't been drinking in this country anyway until we're 21 years old. And strangely, even when we started drinking, we don't typically, and I've pulled lots of people over the years, sorry, I've pulled lots of people over the years to talk about this. We don't typically catalog those flavors. So sometimes it's very difficult for us to go, what will go with this? Because you haven't categorized what that tastes like. And you and I sit down at these uh, uh, judging panels where we taste things and we are very critical about them and we are very um, analytical in our thinking and we have a vocabulary. And the vocabulary exists, it's just that the average layperson isn't putting that vocabulary into any use. So for them, it's very hard to be like, does bourbon go with peach? I mean, for me and you, that's like, fuck yeah, those are great pairing. Mm -hmm. Bourbon and peach, let's get it together. Let's make a pie. Let's make some jam. Let's make a drink. Let's go. Those things go together. But if you can only say to yourself, I know what peach tastes like, but I like bourbon because it gets me drunk, but I don't know what it tastes like, then it's hard for you to put those together. Mm -hmm. So my recommendation is start building that, that sort of categorization, have that Rolodex in your mind of what things taste like on your back bar so that when you look at a bottle of bitters, you can say, will this or won't this go? And you can taste them in your mind before you put them in the glass and you can already make the determination, right? When scientists come up with a hypothesis, they already kind of know the answer. They're just trying to prove it. So it's kind of the same thing. You won't make any mistakes. Your brain will be like, that and that don't mix. But mm -hmm. only if you know what that and that taste like separately. <laughs> right? So you can't make chicken soup if you've never had chicken. So taste everything, catalog, categorize things, write things down. That's always my recommendation. Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably a long answer and people are going to be like, well, that doesn't help. I want to make a drink tonight. Well, you got to start categorizing things and, and putting them in their place, you know? But that's, no, I think that is a great point as well, though. Yeah, like you need to also, that's a great place to start. Think about things. Do they go together? Have you had them in other instances before? Or do I regularly see these things together as well? Sure, that like too. Your bitters there, right? You know, it's Don's mix already. Why has no one done this before? So that led you to create a product. But mm -hmm. you know, like classic combinations. Um, you're a chef, so or yeah, once a chef, always a chef. That's same. what I'm going to say. I say the same to you. You were a chef. <laughs> exactly. We're all we're still chefs. So this I, is I maybe say, hard. I, I used to be a chef. Now I just make chilled soup. It's another classic there from Souther. <laughs> but uh, you're maybe not the, the, the best audience for this because you have built up a, a repertoire of experience working with different flavor combinations. Mm -hmm. um, there's, a, there's a fantastic book, though. We call it The Flavor Thesaurus Over the Pond. I think it's called The Flavor Bible here. Oh, yeah, I have it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's also a good place for people to start where it comes to maybe slightly unorthodox pairings that you're not? too sure about. hundred percent. That's a great book. I've referenced it myself for literally, how old is that book? I've mm -hmm. had it for, I feel like forever. Yeah. 
Um, it's a great reference point. There's a new book out by a woman named uh, Mandy Neglich. Yes. And it's called How to Taste. She is a uh, Cicerone, which is like the nerdy word for a beer expert. She's a, a We Set Level 4 Psalm, sommelier. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I don't want to pre- abbreviate too much for your audience. She uh, has also made it her mission to be like an olive oil expert. Like she tastes food for a living. Mm-hmm. And she's written a book that will guide you and help you understand how to taste things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would couple that with the advice that I just gave, which is catalog these things. Mark them down in literally a physical notebook or in the notes app on your phone or what have you. Walk through the grocery store. And even if you're not planning on buying some of these things in the produce department, pick them up, smell them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, aroma is 90% of flavor. Understand what these smells smell like. And if you can't get there, look them up. Say, well, this smells like mint. Well, go look up what smells like mint. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'll get other words for your vocabulary, you know, camphor, um, eucalyptus. Like there are words that, that, that mint is made of. It's not just mint. Um, and then you can start to identify those things and pick them apart. And it's a great book. She was a guest on my show not too long ago. I was ago. just going to say. Yeah. Um, and she's also a vine pair contributor oh, over there. I, I, I didn't know. Um, uh, yeah. She's charming. Yes. Um, and I'm a big fan. Uh, so, yeah, check out that book. That's a great reference. And, and the Flavor Bibles, uh, one that I've reached for for years and years mm-hmm. and years. Building off of that as well, um, and I, I just received this advice recently from someone that kind of really changed the way I think about things. So I was fortunate enough to be out in Oaxaca. Um, and I was speaking with a mezcalero about the fact that, you know, I've heard conflicting things in the past about should we associate certain or general flavor characteristics with certain types, varieties, and species of agave, right? And I've heard some people say, that's too reductive, it's too hard because it comes down to many things. But actually, this producer said, look, That might be someone who's saying that because other things are happening in the fermentation process, right? Other yeasts, other cultures that are in the, that are around and happening Mm -hmm. are contributing flavors during fermentation. They said, look, yep, year to year is going to be different because it's the growing season, much like wine. But there are things you can look for in, you know, a Mexicano versus an Americano, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But the other thing they said is like, look, take it back a step. If you're trying to figure those out and if you're new to spirits or you don't feel confident in your palate, just assign words like, is it fruity or is it floral or is it savory? Mm -hmm. Or even, and this is what blew my mind and and this is the long-winded thing that I'm trying to get to here, assign a color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mag, uh, she talks about this in her book. Yeah? Uh, Yeah. Assign a color. So, you know, mezcal might be green, but you might have a mezcal that's actually more mineral. And you don't have a way to say that, but it's blue in your mind Mm -hmm. or savory and spicy. You know, you get some mezcals that are really like barbecue, kind of barbecue sauce kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I'm going red in my mind maybe with that or brown, right? And then what colors go together? And generally that might work with this. It might not work at all, but I just think it's a fascinating way to to break down tasting. Yeah, no, I've talked about, we talked about this on the show when she was on. And I've said kind of the same thing I'm going to say because two of the three hosts of my show, including me, are colorblind. Um, so not really helpful to us, <laughs> but we can certainly see how this would, would work. And she went on to say, well, then do it with sound. Um, you know, this this one may sound like a guitar string and this one may sound like a banjo string. Um, this one may sound like a snare drum. This one sounds like a bass drum um, or, or, or other things like that. So I, I get it. I totally get it. Uh, and in the book, she does talk about how um, sounds, colors, lights um, uh, affect the way you taste. Huh. It's pretty incredible. She goes... To the real granular space with it. Nice. And then I guess the other side of this, so that's what kind of bitters you might be using when it comes to cocktail creation. 
but then building cocktails. And this is this was actually the question that originally inspired this episode. Mm-hmm. And we've touched upon it maybe briefly once before, but it's I have this thing where my bottle of Regan's Orange Bitters is nearly empty now. Mm-hmm. And therefore, when I go to add it to the mixing glass, it's this delicate dance of like, how do I slowly get it in before that ends up all over my counter? Even worse if it's Angostura, because it's, you know, got that real strong color to it. Sure. Uh, it will I mean, dye things. So, Jamie Boudreaux famously stained his entire bar with Angostura. Oh, really? Yeah, Canon out in Seattle. That's a very that's a very cool thing to do. Yeah. Well, it was during the Angostura shortage. <laughs> so not the not the smartest thing to do. What's he doing with chartreuse right now, I ask? Yeah, painting the house, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, it's the only well, is it's it's the it's the the product's so good they named a color after that's it. That's right. So, um anyway, we digress. So my question is this. I will see two dashes in a recipe. Mm-hmm. But that dash can change a lot. So how do we navigate that? How do you navigate that? Because I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're, you're a pretty precise guy, methodical guy. Mm. You want precision when you're making drugs. Well, once again, you're asking a question that I've been asked before, <laughs> um, which is great. So here's how I manage this with my teams. Um, and a lot of this advice is going to be great for your listener. And there's one key piece that's not going to be the best. So I'll, I'll make sure that I'm, you know, point that out. When we use what's called a woozy bottle, so picture the Angostura bottle, the Regan's bottle, the Peixos bottle. That bottle shape literally has a name. It's called a woozy. Yeah? Uh, that's a fun fact to know. There's a gross part, too. The, the, the thing at the top that stops the flow, that's called an orifice restrictor. It's pretty gross. Anyway, woozy bottle, orifice restrictor. Good stuff for you to know at the cocktail party. When you're using a woozy bottle, and we typically stay with the five ounce or that range woozy bottle on the bar, even though there are larger and smaller ones, we stay with that range because now we can kind of stay the same. When we pick that bottle up, we do what we call over and a bounce, right? So that's we tilt the bottle in as that first spurt, and then we bounce it again, mm-hmm. right? So two bounces of the bottle upside down into your drink. That is a dash. This gives That's me, one dash? That's one dash. This gives me license to be able to say, I need a half dash, or I need a dash and a half. So if it's just over one time, that's a half. So smart. Three bounces. So that gives me room to maneuver, mm-hmm. yeah? So some of the drinks on the specs say half dash, and we know what we as a team know what that means, right? Are these for you your recipes only, or would you consider that standard across the board? So no, no. You... So this is a system I built for my bars. Perfect. I, I would love it if it were universal. So don't don't forget, there are guys out there who've done the minutia math, right? It's Don Lee and Dave Arnold, nerdy ass friends of mine, who who they've decided exactly what a dash is, and then Cocktail Kingdom built the dash dart to go on top of your bottle. But that's such a small amount that when I do over and a bounce and I look at that versus what comes out of that dash dart, it's so different for me that I have to bounce that thing six or eight times to get what I'm looking for for the drinks that I've specced out at my bars. Mm-hmm. So we're just using the standard woozy bottle with orifice restrictor over and a bounce. You'll notice that there are some bottles that have a larger orifice restrictor than the standards that I just mentioned, Ango, Pecho, Regans. Those caps are all universal size. So we save the ones that we like that are on those three bottles and we put them on the bottles that don't hmm. happen to have them. So that's our woozy bottle answer. Um, and I, again, I'm going to circle back to the problematic part here for your for your listeners. But let's move on to other bottles. When we use the Boston soft shoulder round eyedropper bottle, which is a fi- uh, five ounce, when we squeeze the top and suck the bitters into the eyedropper, it's one third of the length of the dropper full. For one dash? For one dash. And then when we use the two to three ounce Boston soft shoulder round eyedropper bottle, <laughs> it's half of the length of the dropper. Now, guess what? If you grab your gram scale, which I did, over and a bounce from a woozy bottle with an orifice restrictor versus a third of the 
eyedropper from the Boston soft shoulder around five ounce versus a half from the, from the two to three ounce, all almost the same amount. So I built a system based on known integers. And I always say, my watch may not tell the correct time, but it still tells time, right? It's still a measuring device for time. So I've created my own measuring system for my teams at my bars, and they all are well aware of it, right? There is one tricky piece, and that's, you kind of mentioned it before. When your woozy bottle is getting too low, and frankly, strangely, too high, right, the amounts that come out aren't the same. So at the start of every shift, we have many, many bottles of bitters on hand. We bring them all to the level that's just above the label, right? So we start the shift with the bottle, and then we can kind of error correct throughout the night if need be. But so that's the, that's the gist. Over and a bounce for a woozy bottle, five ounce to six ounce size, a third of the dropper for a five ounce Boston soft shoulder and half the dropper for two to three ounce soft shoulder bottle. I, I love that system. I love the... It's a mouthful. It's, it's very hard to describe. I know I'm sitting here waving my hands around to you, but no one can see me. But it's, it's, uh, it's a mouthful to describe. Um, but I'm going to make a video about this because you and I talked about it. And I said, oh, I'd love to talk about this. I've been thinking about making a video and I haven't had time to make the video since we spoke. And now here we are. But I'll get a video up on my socials. I'm creative drunk on all platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, uh, you can see what I'm talking about. But, and there's other guys out there who've tried to show what they think a, a dash is. And that's fine, too. Find whatever you like. And then I would also finish this whole diatribe with the notion that even though we want to have the recipe as the recipe is written, do your ever-loving best to make the recipe as you saw it written somewhere with food or drink the first time. From there, adjust to your own taste. If you like five dashes, go for it. I don't care. If you like one dash, go for it. I, I would still say don't eliminate them. You know, the only time I notice bitters is when they're missing. Huh. Same, same with salt, right? If I'm tasting a bowl of soup, it's the first thing I notice that's missing. <laughs> it's rare that I'm like, too much salt. I'm all, almost always like, yeah, it needs a little more salt. Mm-hmm. Right? I, th- I think as well, like, that we talk about this a lot on this show through the lens of spirits and mm-hmm. other products, uh, nicely timed, that they've changed over time. So you can't, there's no point in sticking to, you know, religiously to Jerry Thomas's recipe or whatever, because these have changed. But it's worth remembering too, as we've spoken about here, that that is the same for bitters. But I do want to say this, you're the over and a bounce, the way you described it is, and also that's the perfect name for this audio format, right? I think that's as close as we're getting from a description point of view. But also, folks, imagine out there you've been to a good bar and you've seen the bartender do the thing. And this is a much less or much worse description of it. But it's the thing that looks fancy when they put it between the fingers. Mm -hmm. And again, Mm -hmm. it's the over and about. And you see it and you're like, you know, if I were good at making drinks, that's how fucking cool I would look when I'm doing it. So, yeah. like, that's the thing. And people will be like, ah, yeah, I've seen it. Or when they see your video as well, like, if they're still not getting it from this, they'll be like, got it, the over and a bounce. And, yeah, and also yeah. say, you know, practice. Um, yeah. Grab your woozy bottle mm-hmm. and keep the cap on and just pick it up between your fingers and, and get comfortable doing that. Mm-hmm. Then if you've got an empty around, fill it with water and just dash it into a glass until you feel comfortable dashing. Because I know what you're saying. I see home consumers. I teach classes all the time. And the home consumer, they're a little bit timid. And then there's a mess, right? Some of it hits the side of the, 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 the mixing glass. Some of it hits the cutting board, whatever. Um, also, that's why bartenders all have alligator mats. You know, alligator mats, spill mat, whatever you want to call them. Um, that's why we have those because we make messes too. It's just that it's black and you don't see it. And it's dark in there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, just practice those things, you know, mm-hmm. nobody gets good at anything by not practicing. So this something 
moving on to a different aspect of bears here that, that's come up a lot on this show, or it's come up a couple of times. And um, I'm keen to hear your take because you've been on both sides of that. And this is for bars. What are the merits or drawbacks of producing bitters in-house? Because I do think there was an era, I think we might be past it, maybe we're wrong, but there was an era where it was like, if you're not doing everything yourself, certain people were like, well, that's not, you can't have integrity. It's not crafty enough. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's probably born from the whole fresh citrus revolution, right? And then people were like, okay, how can we take this to the next level? And then we started making our own bitters for our bars. So like... What do you think? Like, yay or nay or just case dependent? I would say um, for a bar, there's more reason for a bar than for you at home. But I would say still, I don't think either one should do it. And here's why. Well, I would back up. I would say I don't think you should do it consistently. Do it once. Have fun. Mm -hmm. See how the sausage is made. Then go buy the sausage, right? Because here's why. I worked for a bitters company. making bitters on a large scale. And now I make bitters of my own on a medium to large scale. I make a thousand bottles at a time, right? That's pretty big, three ounce bottle. Um, So there are plenty of recipes out there. My good friend Brad Thomas Parsons has a book called Bitters and it's got plenty of recipes in there for you to make your own bitters. But here's the thing, it's expensive to make them yourself. You're gonna need to buy some base spirit, you're gonna have to source all of these ingredients and you don't need a bunch of them but you can't buy them in as small amounts as you need so you're gonna have to buy them in quantity and then you're gonna, go through the process and you're not going to take meticulous notes. I know you. <laughs> I can see you all. You're not going to take meticulous notes. You're not going to take uh, care to make sure that the temperature is moderated and kept the same. You're not going to uh, be in there pulling some of the ingredients out earlier than some of the other ones that need to steep longer, right? Because making bitters is making tea. It's just uh, alcohol instead of water and then, you know, leaves and twigs, right? All mostly dried stuff is what goes into making bitters. Um, you're not going to do all the note taking. And when you get to the end of the process, which is going to take a while, right? Three, six weeks, maybe. Um, And you're going to get to the end of the process and you're going to either have something that's good that you cannot reproduce because you didn't take notes (laughs) or you're going to have something that's not good and you wasted your time and money. When whatever it is you're making, as I mentioned earlier in the show, it fucking exists. Yep. It's going to cost you 20 bucks to 30 bucks to go out and buy it. Mm -hmm. So how much gumption do you have? How much faith do you have in your own process to make sure that you can reproduce? That's going to be where the, the gray area comes. And if you want to be that kind of person who's DIY and I want to make it myself and you're going to make it more than one time, then it does make it worth buying those quantity of things. You're a bar. You're going to make it for this season's drink. You're going to make one big batch and it's going to last you the whole season's menu. That's cool. But generally speaking, I would say making bitters for yourself is just an exercise in curiosity and you're better off buying them. Mm -hmm. And also... You're never going to beat Heinz at making ketchup. <laughs> that's right. I think that's true. You know what I think that the, the what, kind I would, of... what I would recommend more is what I talked about earlier: mixology. Go out and buy. I don't know. Come to my shop and buy ten different bottles of bitters, and then go home and blend them together into your own bitters. Like you just said exactly what I was going to say. If yeah. you want to feel like you're using something proprietary in a drink, mm-hmm. start there, and that and that feels fun, right? Vegans, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Got to, got to, got to make a mixture of that before because I'm sure I've tried it in drinks, but I've never consciously or knowingly sure. had that in my martini. So, got to, got to try that one. Um, so, there. Before we move into the final questions mm. to to round out the weekly questions that we round out the show, any final thoughts on bitters here today? You are the bitter man. I am. Yes, I love bitters. It's true. Um, I would say again things I've said already. I just repeat them because usually I'm talking to someone who's drinking or drunk. Um, <laughs> the only way to misuse them is to misusing them. The only time you should notice them is, is when they're not there. 
um, they will heighten, elevate, change uh, uh, any drink you put them in, you know, and I think no drink is complete without them. It is a rarity for me to make a drink and not finish it with bitters, just as rare as for you and I to go into the kitchen and make, a, make something without seasoning it. It just doesn't happen. There's not a thing that I can make totally naturally that doesn't get seasoned. So why is that true in the bar? Amen to that. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. And we are going to kick off with those weekly questions then. Um, let's do it. And let's start with number one, as is customary. Souther. Yes, what, sir. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? You know, I've heard people answer this question for you before, but I've never had them ask a question back. My home back bar or the back bar at the bar? I think in this instance, we can go straight to your home back bar because I think the, the, been the, over there. the bar. <laughs> <laughs> You've been over there. Um, I say mine is probably split almost equally. And I think what this real question is, is what am I drinking the most at home? Yeah. I think it's split most equally, uh, almost equally between two. I drink a lot of rye whiskey, American whiskey, and I drink an equal amount of cognac. I'm a big fan of cognac. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I mentioned that as well, because also the work bag bar, the actual, you know, <laughs> A, either it's going to be Amaro or B, the answer is that you have 10 location. You're, you're involved ten. in 10 projects. Not all of them are, I believe, serve liquor, hard right. liquor. Right. But that's kind of a hard one, you know. We've got 10 go bars and restaurants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. That's uh, so, yeah. One. So, yeah, it's cognac and, and, and um, American whiskey. And I think that that's because... I'd like to, to give an answer to why. I don't make a lot of cocktails at home. If I'm going to be sipping something at home, that's exactly what I'm doing. Sipping it typically on the rocks or neat. Uh, when I'm drinking cognac, it's neat. When I'm drinking rye whiskey, it's neat or on the rocks. I almost never put ice on my cognac, though. Um, I like on, uh, Armagnac as well, so I'm not leaving them out. But then that's not necessarily what I choose to drink when I go out and about. I'm choosing a cocktail. I'm choosing, I don't even, I'm, I'm, this is how, I think most bartenders are pretty lazy people. Like we're, in, we're, we're creative and we have a lot of ingenuity. But all that ingenuity is there to, to make it so it's easier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't even make like a fucking gin tonic at home. But that's what I drink when I'm out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I want like a nice gin tonic. <laughs> you know, I want to make a highball at home, but I like a highball when I'm out. Oh, you make a mean punch. Yeah, thanks. You were over at my house. <laughs> all right. Question number two. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? I'm, I bet I'm the first, and I don't know, I haven't listened to all 98 episodes, but uh, I bet I'm the first to say the bar spoon cannot live without, must have. And I can tell you why. And I can tell you all the pieces I need. I need it to be about 30 centimeters long. I need it to have a pretty tight spiral because that's going to reduce the um, fatigue on my fingers and hands. Um, I need it to have a, a, a bowl that's about an eighth of a, uh, an ounce so I can use it as a measuring device. Uh, I need it to be a, a single body construction so that I can use it to crack ice. Um, and obviously, I stir drinks with it. Um, I, I am the high proponent of the bar spoon. And this isn't just because at Amore Margo for 12 years, we've only stirred drinks. But it isn't not because of that. So people say, well, how fatigued is my hand going to be from using a, a spoon that doesn't have a spiral on it for spinning a drink? And I'm like, I don't know. I make 400 drinks a night. How fatigued? How many, how many drinks are you making? So, again, it's a professional tool. I need, I need the professional one that's the most high-speed, low-drag Fantastic. I can't remember if that is the first, but you're definitely, definitely, definitely in the minority if no one else has brought that up. I, I, I know we've talked about bar spoons, but I don't think actually anyone has mentioned that because I think to your point, a lot of people are like, that's one of the things you can easily find a alternative for if you're in a pinch, sure. I guess. But, um, Use a chopstick to get stuff around and around in the glass. But, uh, but, but again, if I'm using that chopstick all night, it's going to cause some fatigue. It's not going to be the right weight. It's not going to mm -hmm. balance out. You know, it's just... 
So I'm going to... Not going to help with carbonation either when you're pouring those. <laughs> That's right. It's pouring down the spiral. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Man, I don't mean to be cheeky or glib here, but you and I have talked about this. And in fact, that's one of the reasons I'm here in the office today is to talk to you more about this, but clean as you go. And I know that sounds stupid at face value, but after having been in kitchens for more than a decade and then being behind the bar for now more than two decades, it has greater meaning than just the four words. Um, this can be applied to, you know, the way you treat the people the way you treat your vendors, the way you treat the bar itself, and of course, literally cleaning as you go. Make sure your space is tight and tidy. Make sure that uh, it is um, visually appealing. Make sure that it's welcoming. Make sure that it's comfortable. That's what clean as you go means to me. Mm -hmm. Time to lean, time to clean. That's right, baby. <laughs> Look busy. Jesus is coming. I used, to, I, <laughs> I used to hate that, but also now if I ever see anyone in any aspect of hospitality with the lean on oof not happy with that one um, I think that the, the, the clean as you go I also think that that is related to but not obviously exactly the same thing as but like finish a job before you move on to the next one yeah, oh yeah for sure again it has deeper meaning than just mm -hmm. those four than words than just those yeah um, and yeah it's, it's, it's all about managing your time well mm -hmm. it's about and, and that means the time of the entire shift or the time of it takes you to make this particular transaction or drink or whatever happened if you're doing it in a, in a way that's as tidy as it is dirty at all times then things will be smoother you know mm -hmm. it's that whole um ducks on the water thing you know things may be a bit frantic below the surface but on top everything looks great right mm -hmm. so if, we, if we're cleaning as we go in every aspect of that it's, it's more of a philosophy than a statement mm -hmm. clean as you go nice all right penultimate question here today <laughs> if you could only visit one last bar in your life what would it be Mm. I read this question. You sent it to me. I read it a few times and I didn't really prepare an answer. I kind of prepared for these other ones. Um, <laughs> and it's a tough one because, and the next one too, frankly, but, you know, don't, don't like to think about the end, you know, like to be in the moment. So it's hard to, for me to kind of think like, well, if this was the last one, what would that be? Well, I guess it would all depend on my state, physical and mental. But, but beyond that, if it was just literally today, I'd still have two, I think. Can I have two? I'd make a quick crawl out of it. I'd go to a bar that I love to go to, that I go to all the time, a bar that I feel really comfortable, that I know the staff, that I know the offerings, that I love the music, the lighting, everything there is so comfortable to me. Um, if you follow me at all on social media, I refer to it all the time as church. I try and go every Sunday. That's when you go to church. Um, and I go to Bar Goto. It's in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And I just love it because of those things. Uh, and it's over the years that I've gone there, they're eight years old now, over the, and I've been going there on Sundays since the beginning. And over the years, it's become, it's less about the, what they offer. It's more about what they are. So that would be like a homecoming to me. Mm -hmm. But then if you want to talk about experiential, and, and by the way, I'm not diminishing the experience. I love this place. I wouldn't go there if it didn't serve great stuff and do great stuff. But if you want to talk about experiential, you know, Duke's Bar in London, where I went with three friends one time, I've been once, and Alessandro Palazzi came out with his rolling cart and he served us a frozen Tanqueray martini and he slung the vermouth onto the floor and he was peeling those Amalfi lemons that as soon as the blade hit them and the oil was spraying everywhere like crazy and the room, the entire room smelled of this aroma. Um, and these martinis were just a tall glass of frozen gin with a, with a, a lemon twist. Mm -hmm. um, but the magic <laughs> and the pomp and circumstance and the people that I was with and the experience of it all made it. And so I would go there. 
But as I'm finishing telling you this and becoming very romanticized in my own mind, I'm realizing they're the same place because it's more about who I'm surrounded by and what I'm doing there than the place itself. That's a wonderful answer. Um, a little teary-eyed. Got myself, <laughs> we- got myself I'm, weepy. I'm getting a little emotional here. And <laughs> I want to highlight as well, you know, you mentioned your uh, your your Sunday service, your chapel, your, your church. Your church. You Gibbs know. Sunday, we call it now, because I have Gibsons every time I go there. So it's Gibbs Sunday. <laughs> there's a there's a great piece out there written a couple years ago, uh, pre-pandemic, by by your man Robert Simonson there. On, yeah, I was on hanging out with him today. Day. Yeah. Um, so people should check that out. That's on the New York Times. Wonderful, great drinking advice in there, such as also the most iconic duo, um, Old Overholt Rye. And uh, what's your, what's your what's your beer of choice for that for your Boilermaker? Uh, I mean, if I had my absolute druthers, it's uh, Lone Star. Lone Star, okay. That's my cheap beer of choice. Mm-hmm. But I can't find it everywhere, but I'm Lone Star, Pabst, uh, mm-hmm. High Life, Blatz, Schlitz, Rheingold, <laughs> um, Old Style. I'm, uh, um, you know, it's funny, I think, uh, since we're still on the bitters episode, to note that I'm known for drinking lots of Amaro, lots of bitters, uh, having a very bitter palate, and I don't drink coffee, <laughs> but I also don't drink hoppy beers and i can't for the life of me even figure out why i just don't like them there's something about them that puts me off immediately <laughs> and my mm. my friends who know me in the beer world know this about me and, and they try and show me the, the nicer quote unquote nicer shit beers but I, i'm always drinking what i call uh, hammock beers i know a lot of people call them lawnmower beers but i'm like i'm not interested mm-hmm. in mowing the lawn <laughs> i'm interested in a hammock um so if i had my druthers yeah i sit down and mm-hmm. drink a old overholt and a, nice. and a, and a lone star all right then. Well, there's some uh, there's some some additional free drinking advice there from Southern <laughs> Tea. <laughs> Final question for you here today: If you knew the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? So again, um, don't like to think about the end, but I would have to kind of fall back on the cocktail that I think has made um, made my career in this field that I cherish um, and is also delicious, but it's also incredibly malleable. You know, it's one of the three cocktails we make at Amori Margaret. We, I, I always attest that we've only made three cocktails ever there. We make um, Negronis, we make Manhattans, and we make, of course, Old Fashions. So I would say the Old Fashioned because it is limitless in its um, ability to morph. You know, we can put any spirit. As the, at the top of the show, we talked about the definition. We can use any spirit. Um, we can use any bitters, and I have, you know, numerous bitters um, water is always going to remain the same, but we can even change the sugar, right? We can use cane syrup or demerara or brown sugar, or honey, molasses. Um, so what you have here is a puzzle that can never be completed. There's no end to the options you can make an old-fashioned. So I would have an old-fashioned of some variety. Fantastic. Uh, and if that drink didn't have bears in it, if you chose one without, <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't work for today's show. But no, Souther. thank you so much for joining us today in the studio. And also, we're going to have to have you back for a for a cocktail episode but love to we won't wait 98 further episodes for that one we'll have you back much sooner than that but thanks for joining us today and i'm sure those listeners out there especially the listener with the listener question there um is going to be very happy with that advice and remind us once again the name of that technique is the over and a bounce over and a bounce uh, folks be on the lookout for it. creative drunk on instagram across all social channels yeah um cheers cheers buddy thanks for having me Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show, 
anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.